This is the Prestigious Initiative. Welcome. I'm Chris Bean, and here with me is Chris Kent. Hello, Mr. Kent. Hello, sir. Today, we have a remarkable guest joining us, Fitz Kohler. She's an inspirational figure who has conquered adversary with unwavering resilience, achieved excellence in, in fitness, and built a thriving brand. We'll dive into the power of resilience, practical fitness tips, entrepreneurship, and more. Fitz, uh, how are you today? I am spectacular, guys. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Very good. Uh, can you, you, you know, your, your journey from cancer diagnosis to, to completing the Boston Marathon is, is incredibly inspiring. Can you share uh, some insights of how you cultivated resilience during that challenging time? Well, I think the cultivating of resilience happened way before I got my diagnosis. It was all of those rejections, all of those failures, all of those skin knees and broken bones and challenges I took on. You know, I used to be a competitive kickboxer. That was something that steeled me up for uh, other challenges. And yeah, so I think all of those difficult points in our life are preparing us for the next difficult point. And <laughs> proud to say I had a whole bunch of difficult moments pre-cancer. And, you know, those those instincts, those survival instincts, those fight instincts, those protect myself instincts really kicked in. And, you know, I can tell you that a, a real pivotal moment for me was one of my, my first MRI in cancer. So I'd had MRIs before. And if anybody else in the world has had an MRI, you know, usually they put you on your back on a little bed, they slide you into this super tiny little tubular scanning machine. And then Thor comes outside the machine and he bangs his hammer. So it's a stressful environment. And especially for someone like me, who's claustrophobic. So I haven't enjoyed previous MRIs, which were for knees and hands, hamstrings and so forth. But when I went in for breast cancer, which was a couple of days before I started chemo, it was the last thing I had to get done before I started chemo. And it was all rush, 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 because I went from clean mammogram at the end of December of 2018 to finding a lump that had already spread to my lymphatic system seven weeks later. I mean, it was spreading through me like wildfire. And my doctor said, hey, we need to treat you aggressively and immediately. So this was the last thing I had to do. So I go in for the MRI. I'm already kind of, I'm very stressed. I mean, I've just been told I have cancer and yada, yada, yada. So I go in for the MRI and the tech lady, who's pretty nice, she says, um, okay, get down face down on the bed and put your arms over your head like Superman. I said, no, 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 I'm supposed to lie on my back. And she said, no, 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 not for your boobs. Go ahead and lie down face down. And they had the little uh, donut hole face cradle like massage therapists have, except it was it was like a dollar store version. <laughs> so this little paper thin garbage, I'm sticking my face in and I lie down like Superman and she instantly clamps each of my boobs down with these metal plates. So now I'm pinned to the table by the boobs and starting to panic. I'm thinking, oh God, this is awful. This is awful. And then she proceeds to shove me into the machine, which at that point I lost my marbles. I went from zero to a thousand, just screaming and flailing and begging, let me out. And I'm pretty type A. I'm very in control of me in the real world. But at that point, there was no control. I just was, uh, I, I was losing it and begging for mercy. So she lets me out and then she yells at me and she says, you know what? I stayed late for you and you can't start chemo until you get this done and you need to get your shit together. And I'm like, oh God, okay. Just saying, let me crack my back. Let me pull my hair back. I just need a minute to adjust. So I do. 
and she puts me back in and then clamp, clamp, pins me down by the breasts again. And I'm, I'm in this hellacious position. She shoves me into the machine. And again, what I want to do is repeat the freak out because I'm still equally scared. But at that moment, thank goodness that voice in my head kicked in and, and she started coaching me up. She started just really encouraging me. And the thing she started saying is, you know what fits, you can do this. You can do hard things. You've done a million hard things in the past. You've, you've raised two great kids. You've built a global business. You used to be a kickboxer. You know, you can do this. And so for 45 minutes with the bang, bang, bang and the tight little coffin I was in, she was going and going in my head, just telling me, I, you can do this, blah, blah, blah. And eventually she had said, you can do hard things over and over and over again that I was released right? And so uh, second I got out, the crying ensued. But what I learned that day is if I wanted to survive, I was constantly going to have to do things that terrified me. And I would say almost every day of cancer care brings something that's pretty freaking scary. But um, the voice in my head, she's she's my best buddy. She's my pal. She's my girl. And uh, thank goodness she was talking me up instead of putting me down because I know a lot of people uh, go into that mode where they they talk negative to themselves, and that becomes that makes a bad situation worse. Okay, so you you talked about the resilience, and and you know that happened far beyond or far far before all of the the, the where you actually needed to use the resilience happened. And yeah. I think the the pivotal thing that I gathered from that was all of the, we have all these stressors for everybody across the board all the time. the The issue is lots of times people see those as as problems, not opportunities to learn and grow and to use that to become something better because inevitably those things are teaching you tools that you can use when mm -hmm. something actually bad does happen later right. on. But seemingly what you were able to to do is, is to convert those things from negative experiences to learning experiences and then tools that you can apply when you inevitably needed them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have a naturally sunny disposition, it's who I am. I look on the bright side but there's also a whole bunch of decision making that comes into my world. You know, we get stuck in traffic and how many people, oh my gosh, well, they go on and on about traffic. Like that's the worst thing that could happen. And I just, you know, even before cancer, I was thinking, well, at least it's not cancer. You know, there's all these horrible things happening in the world and so many trivial, trivial obstacles that people will belabor and moan and groan about. And it's not only making themselves miserable, but they spread the misery by showing up at the office or showing up at home, bemoaning all of these trivial things. So, you know, we make choices. If you were not gifted with my sunny disposition, sorry, blame your mom and dad. However, you have choices. This is a learned behavior. It's a practice behavior. And if you start choosing to get over the small stuff, when you get to the big stuff, you'll be able to handle it with so much more grace. Yeah. What a, what a great outlook to be able to apply to, to everybody uh, across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, you built a, a, a very successful brand with fitness. What, what are, what are the key factors behind your entrepreneurial success for those aspiring to create a brand and achieve financial freedom, you know, what, what, what advice would you, would you give them? Um, so I think having an actual passion for what you do is number one. So don't take a job just because your uncle has it available. Do something you love, do the thing you're most excited about. I think that that's the number one secret to success. I think becoming an expert in that subject, whatever it is, whether you play music or you fix cars, learn as much as you can, practice as much as you can, so you can be an actual authority and a pro that people can trust and rely on. 
know who you are. And so for me, I'm the science girl. I have a master's in exercise sports sciences. I've been teaching fitness since I was 14. I truly believe in exercise and quality nutrition, and I've never sold out. And so there's been millions of dollars offered to me along the way to promote diets and pills and supplements and shakes and all of this weight loss snake oil. And my conscience says, no, thank you. And so I know if I would have sold out to promote this weight loss pill or these supplements, Disney would have never hired me to be their uh, speaker to, for their cast members. I would not have been a spokesperson for Office Depot. And I, I wouldn't command the massive stages I do because these companies would look at me as one of those, you know, run of the mill, sell out fitness instructors instead of a highly credentialed, ethical, ethical fitness professional. So I, I, there's a difference. There's a difference. And then, of course, it's show up early, stay late, uh, be as nice as humanly possible be fearless on the job and um, always provide what you promise and then some. And and so, you know, speaking to, to, to your foundational point there, which was, you know, find something that you love and go with that. And then yeah. not, don't, don't compromise, don't do what everybody else is doing. And even right. though it, it seems like that's a detriment to you in the moment because, whoa, they did that. And they look what they did. Oh man, I missed out on, yeah. but what would have happened there, like you said, you would have compromised your morals. And because of that, you'd have done it again and again and again and again. And that overnight success often leads to overnight failure. But the slow burn success is, is not what people really want, but that's right. the way to actually achieve success. Because then that slow, you know, you do, you do five years of, of doing information for nobody. And then eventually something takes off. You're like, wow, look at their overnight. But it's not yeah. overnight because you've been doing it for so long already. And right. by not compromising on your morals, like you said, that that's that's so huge because then you're not being pulled at what everybody else wants you to do. You're not a, uh, you know, a shell trying to to do what they want, but you're doing what you believe in and what you know is 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 correct. Yeah. And you're right. And and we talked about branding. Fitness is fitness, first of all, that we know it's coming from Fitz Kohler, right? But it's a gimmick-free form of fitness. It's understandable, it's attainable, and it's fun. And people know that I'm going to be serious with them and poke them in the chest. I'm going to get them uncomfortable. I'm going to tell them the truth. And I'm going to love them more than anyone else. And I'm going to help them get to their point B. And so those are you know, those are ingredients that make me successful. Thankfully, you know, it's, it's interesting in fitness, particularly when I first started out, I knew that if I worked in a gym, I was never going to be able to buy a house, own, pay off the house, have cars, pay them off, take my kids on vacation. I just, you know, there, that's not really a lifestyle that leads to good things working at a gym. That's a job, not a profession. And so I had to make, I had to figure out how do I turn this passion of mine into an actual career? And I'm proud to say my home has been paid off for many years. My vehicles are paid off. My kids, they have a nice life. They go to college. They're, they have the things that they need, some of the things they want. And uh, I, I, I feel very proud of my business. It's been able to help so many people. So uh, it's, a, it's a lifelong investment. And so speaking on, on your brand, you said you started at such an early age and, and you said you were a kickboxer. So I'm curious, yeah. did you start kickboxing at that early age as well? And that kind of morphed into the, the fitness ac aspect? No. So I actually started teaching fitness at 14. I'd, I had gone to physical therapy uh, for my knee. I had a MCL repair, ended up with a big surgery at 
big cast, long recovery, and a lot of physical therapy. And I thought maybe that would be something I'd like to do. And I, the physical therapy up until my surgery, I thought, this is great. I like this environment. I like being in a gym. I like helping people. I could be a physical therapist. And then post-surgery, when that PT started messing with my incision, I thought, well, that's disgusting. I would not, not like to do this. And thankfully, he told my mom, you need to get her in a gym to continue strength training or she's going to re-injure that knee. I was playing soccer at the time. And so I went to the gym and I fell in love there. I just, I loved working out. I started taking classes. I thought those instructors were super cool. And I was working at Cinnabon because I've always been an earner. That's the other thing. I worked at the skating rink. It's the birthday clown. I scrubbed those toilets. I made cinnamon rolls. And then finally, thank goodness, the manager at Cinnamon Bun was mean. So I left Cinnabon. And I went to the gym I was working out at Spa Lady in Fort Lauderdale. And I said, hey, I'd like to apply. And I, I interviewed on Tuesday and they said, well, can you teach a class on Friday? And thank goodness I'm a gamer. <laughs> thank goodness I said yes. I was like, sure. And uh, I did. And it went pretty well. And, you know, the rest is history. Very cool. Very cool. Oh. Um, did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I started kickboxing when I was 21. And I, you know, I wove that into my career, but kickboxing wasn't my career. So, and and I guess just to clarify, we're, we're, we're martial arts instructors. That's like a, <gasps> a not day job because we do it in evening time, but that's, that's okay. our job. And so when you say kickboxing, do you mean like fitness kickboxing? Do you mean like kickboxing, no. like full contact? Full, full contact in the ring yeah. in front of thousands of people who wanted to see one of us get knocked out, that that type of thing. And I was also the fitness director for the ISKA. Um, my my trainer was the president of the ISKA. So I, oh, I had okay. it pretty good as a fighter. Very cool. Very yeah. good. Okay. And now uh, moving to to mental strength, and we kind of talked about this because I think that mental strength and resilience are are, are connected. Um, I, but I think mental strength seemingly played a, a significant role in, in your cancer comeback. Yeah. How, how can, how can individuals develop and harness mental fortitude and, and overcome challenges in, in any area that they have? Yeah. So I, I think it's got to start with perspective, you know, before cancer for me, I used to say it's not cancer. That was my motto. And then all of a sudden it was cancer. <laughs> and I actually had that moment with myself, like, oh my gosh, you've been bright siding everything because it wasn't cancer. Now it is, is this time to freak out? And what I can tell you is that I'm very human. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of stress. However, what I thought the next step became for me as well, there's all these children in the hospital with cancer. And how fortunate am I that I'm not a kid with cancer and it's not my kid with cancer. And so, you know, perspective is just where I go. I go, I can't not think the only worst thing that could ever happen to me was, would be something happened to my kids short of that. I'll figure it out. So that, that perspective really has to be part of a, of a miserable situation. You know, your house burns down. Okay. As long as the humans got out, we're great. Right. I mean, there's, there's always a better view. In fact, I hear people with this war in the Middle East and some of these people who have families that are taken hostages on both sides are being pretty lovely about it. So, you know, there's always something worse and perspective goes a long way. I think no matter what you do, you got to include your passions. Um, so even though I was devastated by chemo, I was brutalized. I was as sick as a human could be. I was just violently ill for 15 solid months of chemo along. And we injected all the radiation and surgery in between that. 
but I committed up front. I was not missing out on special time with my kids. If they had a show, a ceremony, a sport, I was going to be there even if I had to escape a hospital or some sort of situation. And then also I was going to continue on with my career. So there's so many people who said, no, stay home. There are germs on planes. You got to hide out. And I said, no, no way. Cancer is going to steal my hair. It's going to steal some of my happy feelings. It is not stealing my career or time with my kids. So I boarded over 30 planes out of Gainesville, Florida, and I just kept going. And was that really hard? It sure was. And especially travel with such a sick tummy is, is difficult. But I would go from Florida to, say, California. My I would arrange to have IV fluids when I landed, which is what I I I did IV fluids almost every day for six months at the beginning of my treatment. So I'd go there, get some fluids. I'd sleep on the hotel bathroom floor because that's where you sleep when you're sick, right? That's the only way to stop the world from spinning. And then I would get up and I would drag my little bald head over to the start line and of, of a race or onto a stage of a keynote. And this is the magic. This is the magic that I totally would have missed out on if I had stayed home is that the second I stepped onto those stages, Every single thing that was wrong with me disappeared. I wasn't sick. I wasn't exhausted. I wasn't suffering. I was uh, surrounded by these incredible people at these extraordinary events. And I got to do the thing that I love, which is help them live better and longer and make fitness understandable, attainable, and fun. And so I got to be full force Fitz Kohler again because I made those decisions. If I had chosen to stay home and just give it up for a year and a half, I never would have had a good day. I would have never had a good day amongst them all. Instead, I lifted myself up and I I made it happen. And then I had hours on end, like a marathon last eight hours, sometimes hours of exhilaration and joy and whatever you do, you have to include your passion. So if you love animals, even if you're in the hospital and you can't be with them, okay, we'll pick up your phone and watch the dodo, get on funny animal videos because they will bring you joy. If you love soccer and you can't play, Fine, watch it on TV, read a book about it, listen to a podcast about soccer, but your passions have to be a part of your every day. They're not an, you know, when things hit the fan, that's not an excuse for you to let things go. When things hit the fan, you got to lean in. You got to do more of the thing that brings you joy to help lift yourself out. Nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody can do those things for you. You have to do them for yourself. So would you say that it was the joy of being there, you know, presenting or doing whatever the thing was is that what lifted you out and, 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 you know, changed that, that th those feelings for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, uh, the focus was on something other than myself and my hardship, right? I got to be focused on these tens of thousands of people running for exercise. And, you know, when they come by me at the start line, I'm giving them so much joy. My start lines look like rock concerts. We have so much fun, but the amount of joy they they hit me back with. It's like getting pelted in the face by happiness. It's just incredible. And the same distraction comes from being with my kids. And, you know, again, so many people just give up. They go, okay, I've got cancer. I can't blank. And there's always that aunt peg and she, aunt peg is like, you need to stay home and stay in bed. And okay, that's horrific for your mind. That is, isolation is a bad deal. That's what we do to our prisoners, right? We take people on death row. We isolate them. We don't take our loved ones with a mean disease or an injury and say, be alone. You're going to be alone. Um, so yeah, it just was a distraction and getting away from myself and my story was the greatest gift I could have done on any given day. And uh, it was hard. Yeah. I, I, I was in a bunch of predicaments because of being in poor health, but I also wouldn't exchange any of those moments for anything else. 
So do you think that going through those and, and, and making those moments where you, you were allowed to focus on something else, yeah. do you think that aided in, in your recovery time or the way that, you, I mean, yes. what, what benefit do you think that had for you? I, you know what? It was so stressful. It is so stressful and stress can eat you alive. So I was being, you know, put through the physical cheese grater that is chemo. And then I already was so stressed. Stress can really, I, I, I'm not sure I would have survived if I didn't have the, those massive amounts of joy. It just was so hard. It was so hard. And I don't, I don't want anyone to pity me. It's in reverse, you know, I'm done with it. It's, but it was mind bogglingly difficult and stressful. And it wasn't just, you know, people see on the outside, they see uh, the hair gone and the hair gone everywhere. And maybe they saw some sickness on my face or they, you know, I lost a ton of weight. I, I became a little skeleton, but it was the stuff that was going on the inside was just nightmarish. And my fingernails were ripping, ripping off. Uh, anytime I touched something, I'd open a drawer and a fingernail would rip, which is extraordinary pain. And, oh God, it was just, it was so hard. I needed those things. And so the the thought of other people not digging in to help themselves out really crushes my soul. I want people to have joy no matter what's going on. And in fact, um, quick story, it was, a, it was at the end of my meanest part of my treatment. And I was in a very bad place physically and mentally because I, I was beaten down. And I went to Orlando to go see my daughter cheer at a cheer competition. And uh, things had gotten so bad that morning that I, I had these two epiphanies. In the morning, I thought, okay, now I understand why people discontinue treatment. And I never really understood that before because I thought you got to fight for every day. But the way uh, that morning let me know that, okay, if there wasn't a guaranteed or almost guaranteed light at the end of this tunnel, I would say no mas. I can't do it anymore. It was that bad. So I had that morning and then at a later morning, I show up at this arena to watch my daughter and her friends cheer. And I thought, oh, I'm so happy I'm here. Like, I feel awful, but if I have someone on their deathbed that I love, I need to get them out. You know, they, they we can't just leave them at home to die, right? Uh, and And I think we try to protect our loved ones by saying, oh my gosh, you're dying, stay home. No, you're dying. They have 12 days left on earth. Let's take them to a movie. Let's bring them to a show. Let's take them to a party. You know, life is worth living. Every single day of our life is worth living. And I did not like the perspective I had from that morning that thought, all right, I would give up. I would give up if I wasn't promised a cure. Um, but yeah, giving up, I don't know. I don't know. You just got to, you got to control what you can when you can. Your mindset matters. The people around you matter. Uh, your passions matter. And there's a, there's a lot of things you can't control, but there's a whole bunch of things you can and you should. Well, yeah, very inspiring, very inspiring. And, you know, you, you have now an opportunity to work with cancer patients and, and with them, you emphasize healthy habits for recovery. What are, what are some of those, those most impactful habits that, that, uh, an individual can adopt post-treatment? Well, I'm going to say during treatment, right? The second you're diagnosed, know that there are infinite amount of studies that prove that we can weaponize exercise and nutrition to help ourselves get closer to remission, which is cancer-free, and prevent recurrence. Exercise and nutrition can be very powerful tools in your chest to fight off the cancer. Now, I don't think they're the only tools. I'm not one of those. I think 
definitely do the stuff your doctor's recommending, whether it's chemo or amputation or there's all this Western medicine that I completely believe in, but can and should you help yourself? Absolutely. And it doesn't mean you have to run a marathon during chemo. Lord knows I did not, but I do did the things I could when I could. And, you know, to put it in perspective, guys, I'll ask you the simple question. When people start to feel a cold coming on, what nutritional item do they reach for? Uh, vitamin C most of the time. Vitamin C. People know it's a simple solution to help maybe fend off that cold or help you recover from it. Okay. Now let's talk about cancer. <laughs> we want to get we want to get our, <laughs> our C when we got a cold, but when it's cancer, you know, can you steal up your body? Can you make yourself more resilient, build up your fortitude through nutrition? Absolutely, you can. And no even with that vitamin C to help prevent infections. Well, when you have cancer, quite often someone's poking you with a needle or a scalpel many times a week, many times a month. So each time someone penetrates your skin, having a stronger immune system, having more resistance to infection is a good thing. So nutrition, you know, doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but choose more foods that help versus foods that hurt. And in my book, Your Healthy Cancer Comeback, that's the nutritional focus is foods that help versus foods that hurt, have more of these, less of these. And then of course, exercise. And you know, perhaps someday your cardio is just walking down the hall in the hospital after surgery. Great, that's more productive than just lying in bed. And for those lie in bed days, which I had many, can you do strength training in bed? Yeah. You can, you can do some leg lifts. You can do some bridges. Can you do stretching in bed? Yes. Can you do stretches in the shower? Absolutely. You can, and absolutely you should. So again, in your healthy cancer comeback, there's a big focus on just doing what you can during each segment of treatment. And then hundreds of photos that show here's how to exercise in bed. Here's how to exercise in a chair. Here's how to stretch in the shower. Um, it, it all adds up and people should take the power when and where they can get it. So, Confronting co confronting cancer and turning it into a, a powerful journey required yeah. conquering a fear. What advice uh, you know can you offer our listeners th that are are working on or trying to confront their their fears or overcome uh, their their life in, in various different situations? Yeah, I mean, obviously with cancer, the instant fear you have is death, right? That's the number one fear, and I think most people at that point start saying, "Oh my gosh, all I want is my health." right? You can have the boat and the fancy car and my great jacket. Just, I would do it all just to not have cancer, right? So know up front that um, you should prepare your body to do battle today because injury or illness will can and likely will strike at some point. And being strong and in good health will help you rebound and recover more efficiently and effectively than if you were not. But as far as fear goes, um, either fear can control you or you can control it. And I, I say, be the CEO of your body, be the CEO of your mind, do all of these things. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> some people say, well, you're different. I, I'm not, I'm not, there's no Marvel in me. I've made good, good choices. So practice making good decisions now, practice managing fears. I mean, the simple little fears uh, back in the day when I was fighting, all these magazines wrote all these articles about me and they fly me out to California and take all these beautiful photos. And then I would go to the bookstore really excited to get Black Belt Magazine or Ultimate Athlete or Kickbox or whatever it was. 
And the articles were horrible. They were terribly written. They would make up quotes. And boy, did I really want to write the articles. I was so frustrated. And not only was I the subject of the article, but I was an expert. I had a master's in exercise and sports sciences. And I was positioning myself to be an authority on how to be a better fighter, et cetera. So it really bothered me, but I was afraid to ask for those opportunities. I just was afraid to ask an editor, can I write the article? And I would say, I don't know, a couple of years of frustration and I leave a particularly brutal training session. It's a pre-fight prep and I go get in my Jeep and I go to the bookstore and I get this article and I look and I'm mind blown. I'm so angry. And they probably spelled my name wrong. They probably added an R. It's F-I-T-Z. There's four letters. I don't know how you butcher that, but inevitably they did. And so I'm sitting in my Jeep furious, black and blue, blue and you know all the things that happen when you're training. And then I thought about it. I thought, dummy, you literally are headed to go stand in a ring in front of thousands of people with someone who wants to knock you unconscious. And you're afraid to make this phone call what is wrong with you? And it was just that, that aha moment. So I took my Jeep back to the office. I picked up the phone. I called, I think it was Bob at Black Belt. And I said, hey, Bob. And he goes, this is Fitz. Oh, hey, Fitz, how you doing? I said, great. I got, I got a question for you, Bob. And he said, okay. I said, I was thinking, um, I would like to write an article for you. He said, oh, yeah, that would be great. And then he said, and how much money do you want? And I thought, oh, he said, yes. And he's going to give me money. And then I felt really stupid because I thought, oh my gosh, for two years, I've been missing out on the opportunity and the income. And so, you know, beyond that, I decided if something I was dealing with did not cause bleeding, bruising, or broken bones, I was going to go for it. And so you have to practice being fearless. It doesn't just kick in because you got cancer or whatever. You have to practice. You have to remind yourself of what are the potential consequences if I do X, Y, Z. And, and, for sure, if there's no not much bodily harm involved, I think you should go for it. You should ask for the raise. You should ask for the new opportunity. You should, uh, you know, ask that person for a date. Whatever it is, fearlessness takes uh, time. It takes practice. And and as we all know, I know you two, being martial arts, uh, it's not the absence of fear. It's the ability and willingness to overcome it. So that's that's my uh, suggestion on fear: is practice facing fear, getting past fear and, and keep challenging yourself, do things that are scarier and scarier all the time. Well, and the hard part is too, we have, let's say, you know, whatever the, the instance is, we have this fear, fear built up that it's going to, Oh my gosh, it's going to go like this. And, you know, almost, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not at all like that. It's so much better than what you anticipate. You anticipate the worst possible case scenario all the way. And then you go through doing, and you're like, oh, that was that was way better than I thought. Almost every single time that thing that you think is going to happen in your head doesn't happen. It's it ends up wildly better than that. So the fear that we build up in our in our head of for whatever it is, is not what's going to actually happen. And and if it is, okay, fair enough. You've already thought about what it was. So you know right. what to, you know, if you go into the go into it with, you know, you're thinking you call Bob a black belt magazine. Nope, not you, you, you know, I'm not, yeah. If I'm putting you in my magazine or whatever, you know, whatever the, the thought was going through your head and, oh my gosh, it turned out so much better. Not only did, did they say yes, absolutely they said yes. And, oh, they're going to pay you too? Holy cow, that's 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 the best case scenario. Not at all was on your radar because you thought it was going to be the total opposite. And that's almost always what happens. We build up these fears that they're going to be so much worse. And then we don't even do it. We, yeah. that, that fear stops us, that, that mental image of what we think is going to happen oh man, nope, I can't do that. I can't, I can't accept that, 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 you know, that that's going to happen. And then they don't do it. And then 
if you could do it, if you build up the courage to do it, doing things despite the the fear, that's what bravery is. And wow, oh, that was so much better than what you thought it was. Yeah. And then you do that over and over again. Then those fear that still happens because it's, it's inevitable. We're humans. It has to happen. But those things start to you, you the, that takes kind of a, a backseat. And then you just go do it. And then if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, okay, fine. But you at least you're out there, uh, you know, putting yourself out there to try to experience those things that you would otherwise be missing out on. Absolutely. And it's it's really that fear of rejection. What? Okay, so he says no. All right. <laughs> Let him say no. So many people have told me no throughout my career. They say no far less often now. Good for me. Things have really improved as my career has progressed and that's how things are supposed to go. But but yeah, you got to get through a whole bunch of no's to get to the yes. And if you don't ask, you'll never get the yes. Right. Now, you you talked a little bit about your book, The Cancer Comeback Series. Um, can you you share uh, your experiences with with self publishing and offer guidance to you know inspiring authors that that are trying to figure out what to do as they're as they're writing? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'm gonna let you see it because I'm very proud of these. So there's three in the series. There's the memoir, my noisy cancer comeback, and then there's the guidebook for cancer patients, your healthy cancer comeback, sick to strong, and then the healthy cancer comeback journal. So uh, I chose self-publishing with these books because I had already gone I the traditional route with my first book, my first and second book, technically. The first book, they, uh, I mean, golly, I think it was like 12 years ago, but they reached out and I had a literary agent and I think it was, we're going to pay you $10,000. Can you buy, can you write this cookbook? And I said, okay. And it was a flat fee. That first book went pretty well. It's the everything flat belly cookbook. And it did very well. I'm very proud of it. And within publishing, uh, you have to have written a book in order for them to give you a book publishing contract. It's a very kooky industry, or you have to be an A-list celebrity or have a world famous story. Like maybe you fell in the well when you were a baby type thing. Um, but with the second book, the same publisher came back and said, we love number one. Will you write this other uh, book for me? And I, I said, sure. And so I wrote the book and we had a similar contract and then I turned it in and they came back and they said, we want you to include a chapter on negative calorie foods, suggesting that there is some sort of food that you would burn more calories while digesting than you receive in consumption, which is complete hogwash silliness. And then a chapter on diet pills, you know, like these are the ones you should take. And I said, no, they're, I'm not lying to people and this could cause harm. And they said, well, you're only listed as a freelance writer, so we can do whatever we want. And I said, you're not publishing this book with my name on it. And they said, okay. And so they gave me my money and then they published my book with somebody else's name on it. And I, I spit nails for a while. It was hard. And I fired the agent because she put me in that position. I should have been listed as an author and I didn't know that. So anyways, that was uh, my regular traditional publishing experience. And then when these books came into my mind, you know, the first one was the memoir and I just, I thought about it and I thought, you know what, I could get a publisher. I have a large enough audience that I, I could get one, but they take their time. They control your content. They're slow. They're, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't want to do that. I've come too far in my profession and I have too much control over my own brand to allow my message, my story, my books to be controlled by somebody else. So I decided with self-publishing, there was enough resources available to teach me how to do it by myself. And I say by myself, 
I'm the producer of these books. I'm the author of these books, but I hired some outstanding professionals to design covers and do the layout and edit my words. And, you know, it really was a, uh, I, I say a team effort that, you know, I was ultimately in control of, but yeah, self-publishing has been a fantastic experience. Is it tedious? Absolutely. Is it a mind boggling amount of work? Absolutely. Only do it if you're really in it to win it, right? You have an important message that needs to be heard or you're excited to share and then you're willing to do it right because uh, I'm sure you've seen there's so many people are like, I'm gonna write a book and then they design their own cover and they don't hire an editor and that book makes their uh, kind of damages their business and their brand because it's unprofessional and that's what people attach to that author. But um, but yeah, there's a there's a ton of resources out there and it's been very rewarding. And especially with these books designed to help people, uh, my noisy cancer comeback, the the memoir has been well-received by lots of folks, not just the cancer community. I'm, you know, my running community, anytime I go speak, there are lots of people buy the books and I get tons of great feedback, which is very rewarding that it's helping not only helping and entertaining the masses. And then these two books, the ones that are designed just for cancer patients, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't explain how meaningful it is. I probably every day of the week, I get a message. Someone reaches out and says, Hey Fitz, I just bought your book from my uncle. He's got brain cancer and I really want him to, you know, exercise and I'm excited for your help. Or, you know, my daughter has ovarian cancer. Can you get her these books? And so most of them are purchased as gifts, um, which is, it's just very meaningful. And it's also difficult that I, I hear these stories of diagnosis every day, but inevitably I get a message from the cancer patient who's saying, this is really helpful to me. And thank you for sharing your story or sharing this guidance. So uh, they've, they've turned out to be a very special uh, part of my business. And, you know, my, my goal for your healthy cancer comeback is, you know, how, when pregnant, every pregnant woman on earth gets what to expect when you're expecting I'm hoping that's my Babe Ruth swing for the fences. I want every cancer patient on earth to get this book upon diagnosis. And so far, oncologists are buying it in bulk for their patients. So I think I think we're moving in the right direction. Wow, very good. So uh, a couple of questions from there. Uh, I, I, it's, it's interesting hearing from somebody that did the traditional publishing route and then went to, to self-publishing. Um, self-publishing... Is, is like you said, so much different than what like traditional publishing is. I guess I hadn't thought about the way that traditional publishing goes. You basically sign over your work to them and they, I mean, they control it sort of, you know, to some regard or get to say, you know, Hey, put this in there, put this in there. You know, that's, that I, that is really interesting. I, I for, I, I thought about traditional publishing as like a, like you have to win a popularity contest you know, the, the normal people have to win a popularity contest in order to be accepted for that person to be even to even consider your work as, as something that they'll even look at. And then on top of winning that popularity contest, then you have to deal with all the 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 social dynamics and and and, and uh, whatever else that the co the company wants you to put into your book. And no, you're, that, that's not going to work. And they're just going to, you know, wow, that's that is really interesting. I had not not thought about that perspective before. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's certainly things you could do contractually, you know, uh, contracts are our friends. They will help you have more control of your own prog process. But, 
for me, I could say, all right, editor, I want you to go through the manuscript and I need it by Friday. Okay. Well, if a traditional publisher has your book, they might say, yeah, we're going to get this one edited within six months. It's their team doing their work. And I don't work that way. I'm, I wanted it out and I got it out and it was timely. It was, you know, people were really interested in me and what was going on. I still had this weird little strange hairdo coming in and, uh, you know, people were still really interested in my cancer comeback story. And so I had to hit while the iron was hot. Right. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had gone traditional publishing. Now, my next question is your, your, your journal one. Yeah. Uh, there's there's huge benefit in journaling. Yeah. And I'm 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 curious, is that a book that gives the 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 person an opportunity to uh, like it gives them a prompt and it gives them an opportunity to write? Yes. And so I'm gonna start by a little bragging. So I, these books are full color. Everything in these books are blue and pink and all the photos because I, you know, with cancer, everything's so scary. When you show up at a doctor's office, there's this digital board and god forbid you press the ailment you face there's all the worst <laughs> worst information on earth is in there and everybody looks so sad as like there's a nurse and a woman with a scarf and they just look so miserable and i thought f that we're gonna have the best time we can no matter what's going on so the journal is i i've designed it for joy but yeah there's hundreds of prompts and I'm just going to show you. So there's right up there about me. So you put in like who you are, what you do, what your age is. And then there's, you know, about your diagnosis and places for you to put in notes about your meetings with your doctors. And then there's prompts to discuss your family and your faith and your friends and your feelings. And obviously the cathartic place to write down your feelings is a big deal. But I've also included a whole bunch of fun stuff, Um, you know, uh, what have you nicknamed your port? That's a big deal. Have you nicknamed your tumor? Uh, what celebrity do you look like bald? And so I got a whole bunch of that. I never wore a wig. So people were always like, you look like Grace Jones. And I'd say, really? <laughs> no, maybe. Uh, but the one I was most frequently compared to was crazy Britney Spears. So I thought, ah, thanks team. So there's a lot of fun stuff in here, you know, advent calendars for can for Christmas, where people count down the days till Christmas. We have a advent style calendar for radiation where you crisscross your zaps that you're going to get and your surgery countdowns. And there's a chemo countdown calendar. And then the last half of the book, like full color again, is your daily fitness journal. So this is a place where you document your nutrition and your exercise and your, uh, your sleep patterns and, uh, how you're feeling your sleep. Uh, I already said sleep and then strawberry moments. Do you know what strawberry moments are? I do not. Strawberry moments are the best part of your day. And so in those daily logs, people are encouraged to write down not only, you know, if they moved and what they ate and what they drank and so forth, but you have to come up with two strawberry moments. And even in cancer, even on your worst cancer day, something wonderful happened. Maybe you got a text from an old friend or your doctor gave you a big hug, or maybe you got some great news, who knows, but you got to focus on those things too. So I'm really proud of the journal. It's just so much fun. And uh, yeah, there's prompts galore and some of them are really basic, well, standard. And then some of them are totally out there. And I think those are the ones that are most popular. I think that I think that's fabulous. I, there, there's such benefit 
in going through a journaling practice, especially, you know, as they're going some, through something as tough as having, having cancer and yeah. the strawberry moments, giving them an opportunity to, to uh, sort of force them to think about some positive that happened through their day and then to recall that and then to, to focus on writing that. I think the attention that that brings in uh, both to think about that, that moment, but then also to then write it down physically is hugely benefit, beneficial in, in, in many aspects. Like journaling is, is something that has been uh, proven scientifically to do lots of beneficial things that people didn't know or don't understand that it can do. And so I think that, you know, especially taking somebody that is in that type of atmosphere and allowing them to bring those things to focus and then to, to again, write them down is hugely impactful. I can only imagine. Yeah. And, and it's also this um, bit of your history, right? So hopefully you're, you hit remission and you go on and maybe one day you get to reflect at the, the fond and not so fond memories. And, and some of these will be left for family members to review. And it's a special opportunity to, you know, read the words of someone perhaps you might've lost, you know? So uh, it's, it, it's meaningful in a variety of ways, but I am committed to all of my readers hitting remission and living long and living well. So that's, that's most important. That's where we're going with these books. Very good. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a truly remarkable uh, effort that you have for that. Very good. I, I, that's, I'm, I commend you for that. Very good. My, <laughs> my um, mom uh, has, has had cancer battle with it back and forth uh, a couple of different variations of it, but that is uh, definitely something I'm going to look into to get in her the, the journal for that. Cause I think that would be very beneficial uh, for her. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, shifting gears a little bit, as a as a race announcer and keynote speaker, you've mastered the art of of effective communication. What what tips or or guidance can you can you offer in how you can deliver an impactful message? So I would start by telling folks to take join a Toastmasters club. I think that is key to success on a microphone. I joined Toastmasters when I was in first grade. I was in the gifted program. And I just recently publicly thanked that gifted teacher who's on my Facebook friend list. But yeah, Toastmasters will help you build concise messages, which is very important. If you're going to stand in front of a crowd, there's a reason. What do they want from you? You have to know what they want from you. There's a reason. And every time I step in front of an audience, I assure you, it's slightly different than the last audience. Some Sometimes uh a HR professional who hires me will say, can you talk on this totally different topic? And I think about it and I say, okay, let me build that. But it has to have a concise message to start with and then some evidence and some anecdotes to back up that message. But you really should respect your audience. And I think Toastmasters, or I know Toastmasters is the first step in doing that. You should clean up your speech. You should not stand on a microphone and, um, 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 mm, well, like this, like that. I mean, it's punishing. That's absolutely punishing to sit in an audience and listen to a speaker stammer and um and ah. So Toastmasters will help you clean that up. Do not be confused. It's it's similar to your favorite football player fumbling the ball 300 times a game. You wouldn't like that very much. Every time you say um or ah or like, which is only acceptable if you're on ABC's The Bachelor uh, so start with Toastmasters and then start small. Speak in front of your colleagues at the office. Speak in front of your men's or women's group at church. Speak to the kids in your child's classroom on career day. Start small and then grow from there. And if you are going to 
expect money in exchange for your message. It better be a good one. And you better have invested in your communication skills. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring up Toastmasters because we, we had a guest on just just previously uh, to you, and and she also talked about Toastmasters, and so it's really interesting that that two 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 guests in the same day both talked about it. that was really that's yeah very interesting. Um, and Toastmasters is something I, I have read about before, but I had a, a really kind of a skewed image of what I thought it was, and it was it's not what it actually is. But uh, very very interesting uh, Toastmasters, and and I I think. So with Toastmasters, you get the opportunity to be up on stage and talk to people. The The audience are members most of the time, it seems like, and they're giving you things, okay, you did good on this, and these are some things to, to improve, yeah. and this is how to improve those, right? That is hugely beneficial. And then, of course, there, there's curriculum that happens throughout, so you're actually learning how to do the things as they progress. It It seems like perhaps that's how speech class should be at university. When you go to college, you, everybody pretty well takes a speech class, but speech class is not at all what Toastmasters is, or at least uh, from my outside appearance, seems to be. Although they're doing the same thing, just one of them is doing them very poorly and I'm paying much more for it than otherwise. Right. Yeah, I think Toastmasters is $20 a year and you don't even have to get on a stage. It's normally a little a room somewhere, mm. some room with chairs and you just go in a circle and they'll say, all right, this week, I want you to prepare a presentation about your favorite pet or your favorite vacation. It's something that you know you don't have to do too much research on and you can speak eloquently about, hopefully. And you're right, they, they'll they say you did, you ummed seven times and you liked 12 times. And you know what's interesting is people feel this pressure to just keep vomiting sound. I love a pregnant pause. It is okay to stop talking and think or make people wait and get excited about your next words. So that's where people keep, uh, 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 cause they don't want to lose the audience. They feel like if I stop talking, someone else will take over and win the conversation, even in their personal life. So I think Toastmasters is so valuable and, and they pay me well for speaking and I earn every one of those dollars they give me. But every time I get the check, I think, thanks Toastmasters first grade every single time. And it seems like you, you you bring up like and um and those those filler words. It from my understanding, people use those words because they're thinking while they're you know they're they're just making a, a vocal sound as they're thinking. But really, it's kind of difficult to think and talk at the same time. So if I'm making that vocal, uh, my brain isn't actually thinking. I have to actually stop making the noise in order to think and then say the next thing. So it would be better if you just pause, like you said, and then moved on with the thought as opposed to putting some sort of sound out there, be a comfortable, be, be more comfortable with the pause and think and then figure out what you're going to say and then say it as you move forward. You're right. And nobody expects perfection. So if I'm on a stage, I come close to perfection with the ums and ahs situation. If I'm at home casually, I might uh, to my family. <laughs> However, sure. these communication skills aren't just important for people on stages. They're important for anyone. I, it's funny. I, I'm a university of Florida graduate, graduate two times over. I have a undergrad a bachelor's and my master's from UF. And so I host interns every semester from the college of health and human performance. And once I had this young man interview, he was late. He didn't, his previously booked interview or internship fell through 
and he needed something for the semester. And I really didn't have room for him, but I thought, oh, he's a gator. I didn't even do an in-person interview. I just said, have him give me a call. So he did. And this whole conversation, all I heard was, um, and, um, and like, and, um, and uh, I don't know what he said, but all I could think was, I cannot let this person leave the University of Florida and embarrass the entire Gator Nation. This is not going to happen on my watch. So I took him on as a intern. So then I had five interns. And what we did is I would sit them at the table and we would go around. And I would say, OK, you're going to speak for 60 seconds. Tell me about your best friend. Do not use the word um or ah. And the second they would do that, I go and make a big buzzer sound. And they would have to start over and go another 60 seconds without using those filler words. And they would slow down. They would start thinking about what they wanted to say. And it's very interesting when you can look at somebody's face and see the wheels spinning in their head. But it was magical. And this young man, he is now, he's in real estate and he's a father and a husband. And he is so darn eloquent. I am so proud of him. That's one of my greatest success stories is turning this kid from a gobbledygook speaker into an eloquent businessman that he could represent anyone proudly. But yeah, your speech matters, as does your writing skills, correct? Use spell check for crying out loud. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And and uh, when when that little squiggly line is there, do something about it. Yes. Please. Yes. Uh, well, Fitz, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey, uh, your insights with us today. Your journey was, was uh, you know, a, truly a, a testament to power of resilience and determination. You know, before we before we wrap up, do you have any any final thoughts or key takeaways to leave our audience with? Well, I would love to connect with them. I mean, I, I'm only successful when I help other people be successful. And so if you would like to accomplish anything in health or fitness or weight management, most of my resources are completely free. So you can visit fitness.com. That's F-I-T-Z-N-E-S-S.com. And again, tons of resources. I promise if you follow me at fitness on social media, I'll provide quality content in return. But really what I would prefer is to have friends rather than followers. So if you reach out and say, I heard you on the prestigious initiative podcast, I would love to connect. Uh, those, those opportunities are really meaningful to me. And of course, my books are available at fitness.com. They're available everywhere. But if you buy them at Fitness, I sign all of those and I wrap them beautifully so your recipient feels uh, very special. Wonderful. And I'll be sure to leave the the links to all of those uh, those places in the, the show notes for this episode as well. Yeah. Thank you both so much for having me. This has been a really nice, nice hour of my day. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming. That concludes another episode of the Proceedus Initiative. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Remember, you can conquer challenges, achieve your goals, and lead a fulfilling life with the right mindset and strategies. Until next time, keep striving for greatness.